It's Tuesday, June 29th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. A new study has some good news for the lingering question about how long immunity lasts after being vaccinated. The mRNA vaccines made by Pfizer and Moderna set off a persistent immune reaction in the body that could protect against the virus for years. The study suggests that most people immunized with the mRNA vaccines might not need booster shots unless the virus and variants evolve too much. Apoorva Mondavilli, reporter at the New York Times, joins us for more. Next, U.S. forces in Syria came under rocket fire a day after the U.S. launched airstrikes against militias backed by Iran in Iraq and Syria. The U.S. airstrike was described as a defensive attack after seeing an uptick in drone strikes from the militias. Courtney Cube, national security correspondent at NBC News, joins us for the latest military actions in the area. Finally, we are seeing people leave unemployment rolls faster in states that have canceled enhanced unemployment benefits than in those keeping them in place. Businesses are still having a tough time attracting workers and keeping them from quitting, and many suspected that workers were still reluctant to go back into the workforce because of these extra benefits. Eric Morath, labor and economics reporter at The Wall Street Journal, joins us for how people are looking for jobs now that unemployment benefits are ending. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. So this study was very cool in that they looked at the source of those immune cells to figure out how actively is the body preparing to fight the virus, because that can give us a sense of how long the immunity lasts. Joining us now is Apoorva Mandavilli, reporter at The New York Times. Thanks for joining us, Apoorva. Thanks for having me. I wanted to talk about some good news when it comes to coronavirus. Obviously, we've been handing out the vaccines. We're trying to get as many people vaccinated as possible. One of those lingering questions that had been around for a long time is how long of immunity you get when you get the vaccines or even uh, after you've had the virus itself, you through natural immunity. But we got a new study. This one focuses on the mRNA vaccines. These are the ones from Pfizer and Moderna. And basically, they say that the protection lasts for a long time. It could last for some years. It could last a lifetime in certain situations. So, Apoorva, tell us a little bit more about what we're learning. So as you said, we don't really know how long the protection from vaccines lasts. There have been some studies suggesting that after natural infection, immunity to the coronavirus might last a very long time, years and possibly a lifetime. But we didn't know that for vaccination. And it's a bit harder to study for vaccination because you have to be able to look at all kinds of cells and antibodies that fight the virus inside the body. And we just have not been vaccinated for long enough to really have that information. So this study was very cool in that they looked at the source of those immune cells to figure out how actively is the body preparing to fight the virus, because that can give us a sense of how long the immunity lasts. Early throughout the pandemic, as we were learning through all of this, we were talking about antibodies, B cells and T cells. But with this study, we're focusing on B cells and uh, the germinal center that's forming in the lymph nodes. Help walk us through some of that. So what happens after either infection or vaccination is that in the lymph nodes, you get this structure called the germinal center. It's sort of like a training ground, a school for the immune cells, the B cells. That's where the B cells sort of become more and more sophisticated. They learn to recognize lots of different variations of the virus, which is a good thing, right? Because the virus is evolving. So just as the virus is evolving, these cells also continue to evolve and they become capable 
of recognizing a lot of versions of the virus. The longer they have to practice, the better they get. And what this study showed is that those germinal centers where these B cells become more and more educated are super active even 15 weeks after the first dose of the mRNA vaccine. And that was kind of a surprise because normally a germinal center sort of quiets down within about four to six weeks. So to see it's so active at 15 weeks, that's a really good sign that our memory B cells, the cells that produce antibodies and can remember the virus, they are going to stick around for a very long time, possibly for years, possibly a lifetime. How many people uh, were in this study and, and what else? Uh, how else was it conducted? The study, they recruited 41 people, including eight who had been infected with the virus before. And from 14 of the people, they took samples from the lymph nodes multiple times at three weeks, four weeks, five, seven, 15 weeks after the first dose. Unlike a study that looks at a lot of people, but maybe looks at one time point, in this case, they had 14 people, but they looked at multiple time points, which is really hard to do, especially when you're extracting samples from the lymph nodes. That is not a trivial task. So some of the researchers I talked to were really blown away by the in-depth analysis from the study. And one scientist I talked to called it a heroic study because it's just not the kind of analysis that's easy to do. So even though it's 14 people, it actually gives us a lot of information yeah. about what's happening with these immune cells. You know, one of the big caveats through all of this, though, is the variants, right? This is um, taking a look at what we have now and if the coronavirus continues to mutate, which it will do, you know, who knows what happens then. And the virus is evolving, but we are too. So that's kind of the only little caveat with this, right? And it's a big one. It's a huge caveat because we know that the virus is evolving and we know that the virus has already evolved into forms that dodge the immune system a little bit. You know, they still respond to the vaccines and the vaccines all work against all of the variants we have so far. But against some of the variants like beta and delta, the vaccines are a tiny bit less effective. And if the virus continues to evolve and continues to become something that can really dodge the immune response that we have built up so far, then of course we'll need booster doses. But if that doesn't happen, if somehow we get lucky and the virus continues to look kind of like it does now, we may not need booster shots. As I mentioned before, this is uh, focusing on the mRNA vaccines from Pfizer and Moderna. They didn't look at Johnson & Johnson. But the good news that they kind of came through all of this, too, is that it seems like being vaccinated is almost better than the natural immunity. The, you know, the B cells kind of adapt to broader, a broader sense of the virus, more so than just getting the virus and, and fighting that off specifically. Is, is that also what, they, what came out through this? So immunity from natural infection is actually pretty great and it lasts a really long time. And immunity from vaccination is also great and lasts a long time. But the best combination so far seems to be if somebody has recovered from COVID and then had a dose or two of the vaccine. But we also have some evidence that even though both kinds of immunity are good, the vaccines produce immune cells that you know do this sort of evolving that I was talking about, and they seem better able to recognize a much broader range of genetic forms of the virus. So they'll be better about protecting us from variants long term. Apoorva Mandavili, reporter at The New York Times. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. They targeted uh, operational and weapons storage facilities at two locations in Syria, one location in Iraq, both with um, uh, very close to the border between the countries, several Iran-backed militia groups, uh, including KH, uh, including KSS, 
uh, use these facilities. Joining us now is Courtney Cube, National Security Correspondent at NBC News. Thanks for joining us, Courtney. Hi, thanks so much for having me. The U.S. military carried out what the Pentagon was calling defensive airstrikes in Iraq and Syria. This was against militia groups backed by Iran. They've been behind these drone attacks on American personnel in the area since uh, April. I think there's been five drone attacks. We're also hearing that rockets landed at a U.S. military base in eastern Syria after these first airstrikes were conducted. So, Courtney, what are we seeing in the area? You literally just in the, in the last hour or so have learned about these reports of some rockets that were fired. It sounds as if they were near or at U.S. military in Syria. So far, we know that the U.S. responded with some artillery strikes back, but we don't have a whole lot of details beyond that. One uh, U.S. defense official I spoke with said they believe that the origin of these rockets were some of more of these Iran-backed militia groups. So where this whole thing started, you mentioned that, that there has been this ongoing threat from drones for the past several months. It's actually been going on even longer than that. But just in the last few months, there has been a bit of an uptick in it. And defense officials who I've been speaking with have been increasingly concerned about it. They are worried that as more and more of these drones are sort of flown into U.S. facilities and targeting U.S. personnel, that they're going to have some casualties here. So they took these strikes last night, one in Iraq and two in Syria, as a, a means of trying to deter future drone strikes. And what's clear is the defense officials know that they're not going to be able to necessarily stop the motivation behind these UAV, these drone strikes. But they're hoping that by taking out some of these facilities where they build them, maybe they'll be able to stop some of them in the immediate future. Tell me a little bit more about the drones themselves, if you can, because what we're hearing is that there's kind of this new class of Iranian-made drones that could evade U.S. surveillance and defenses, possibly. Uh, and, you know, they come in varying sizes. So if you can, what do we know, uh, any, if anything, about these drones? That's another thing. They, um, they are in many different sizes. And what's interesting is some of the ones that are the most concerning are the smaller ones. Because if you think about it, the U.S. military has a lot of air defenses. So Patriot, these things that are called CRAMs, which can stop some of the smaller missiles that are coming in. But when you're talking about just a little drone that these militia groups can just fly in and crash them into a facility. Think about it, if you crash them in and they have some explosives on them into a chow hall in Iraq or into some sort of a, a facility where people are living or working and then they explode. Now, that has the potential to do real damage and potentially cause some casualties. So what's interesting about this newer threat, it's not new. It's the, the militias there have been perfecting it over the last couple of years. But this newer and emerging threat is that these smaller drones, some of them are just commercially bought drones that are sort of retrofitted with explosives. They can be among the bigger threats that the U.S. is facing there. Tell me about the political tensions that are going on right now. Obviously, Iraq released a statement saying that they weren't happy with the strikes. Iran obviously doesn't like the strikes that the U.S. conducted. But, you know, right now the Biden administration is trying to engage Iran on trying to uh, start up a new nuclear deal as well. So there's so much going on in the area, you know, aside from these drone attacks and these airstrikes. Yeah, that's right. I mean, so you have this in new incoming regime in Iran. You have the Biden administration that has been, you know, trying to work out some sort of a way to get back to the, the, the uh, nuclear deal with Iran. So none of this is happening in a vacuum here. And the Iraqi government issuing that pretty rare rebuke of the U.S. military actions there in Iraq, that seems to have been mainly for domestic consumption. You know, the U.S. military is working very closely with the Iraqi military still and NATO forces and other allies there in Iraq. So 
it's not like that's also not happening in a vacuum that the U.S. military is acting. But even when there have been in past times where the U.S. military has made any kind of an offensive action against these militia groups, we rarely hear this kind of a specific rebuke from the Iraqi government like as we did here. And the next question is, well, why? Why are the Iraqis speaking out? And the officials I'm speaking with believe that it's mainly just for domestic consumption and in large part because they're still trying to hedge their bets with this new incoming Iranian government. They don't necessarily want to start off on a bad foot of backing a U.S. offensive action against the Iranian-backed militias. In all of these drone strikes, have we seen any casualties or any major damage to any structures or anything like that? There are some groups on the ground that are claiming in one case that there were up to four of these Iraqi paramilitary group soldiers who were killed. There have also been some reports of maybe some civilians. It's hard to know, especially in Syria. It's really hard to get strong information and and accurate information. The U.S. military, who I've spoken with and defense officials, are saying that they don't have any reports of casualties yet, but that doesn't mean anything. It's been one of the hardest parts about covering this conflict, you know, especially in Syria. It's really difficult, if not impossible, to get to some of these locations. And bad information travels a lot faster than the truth. So at this point, we we just don't really know. We know that from the U.S. side that the pilots, these were manned aircraft, F-15s and F-16s. We know that the pilots all returned safely to base after the strikes. Courtney Cube, national security correspondent at NBC News. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. If you go to a restaurant and you say, oh, man, this doesn't look like a a safe place for my family to eat. I don't like how many people are close by me. You can walk out. If that's your place of employment, it's a little bit harder to quit. Joining us now is Eric Marath, labor and economics reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thanks for joining us, Eric. Sure. Happy to be here. I wanted to talk about the recovery from the pandemic right now when it comes to businesses. We've been seeing a lot of stuff. We've been seeing uh, businesses struggle to attract workers. We've been seeing people quitting jobs all over the place. Right now, we're also seeing that a lot of states cutting those enhanced unemployment benefits early Uh, in states like Missouri and 21 other states. They've canceled that this month. And what we're also starting to see is that there have been an uptick in applications after they started to do so. So it kind of suggests that ending this is pushing people to go out and, and look for jobs again. So, Eric, tell us a little bit about what we're seeing. These enhanced benefits are starting to roll off, and essentially they pay workers an additional $300 a week than they receive on state benefits. We're seeing the number of people on the rolls fall, even though they would still, in this case, still qualify for some level of state benefits. And we're not seeing that same decline happening in other states like New York or California, where the benefits are slated to be in place until September. So economists say that's a sign that people without the extra money are leaving the benefit rolls. And and the logical reason why they would do that is because they're finding employment. You focused on Missouri a lot in your latest article. They cut out their payments on June 12th. There's other states that are doing, I did it on June 19th. And I think some more states are doing it by July 10th. But tell us about Missouri in particular and what they've been seeing with their labor force. Missouri was among the first states to act to curtail the unemployment benefits. It also has a fairly low unemployment rate. The unemployment rate there is closer to 4%. Uh, It's been below 5% since last fall. So that's well below the rest of the country. So that it's a place where the labor markets already was fairly tight. They didn't have the same level of restrictions as we saw in places like California and New York. So 
things have gotten, you know, not all the way back, but have gotten back there faster. And a lot of businesses say, hey, we can't find the workers we need. And many of them blame these unemployment benefits. And now they're sort of seeing a mixed uh, sense. Some, some businesses we talked to reported, you know, big upswing in applications. Others, including one in manufacturing, said, you know, it's still a really tight labor market out there and we're not getting the number of workers we hope for applying for these jobs. You also focused on a Midas Hospitality. They're a St. Louis-based hotel company. They have 44 locations. And they kind of went through this whole thing where they were doing job fairs. Nobody was showing up. And little by little, as these unemployment benefits started going away, then they started seeing people come back. Tell us about that. A lot of businesses in the hospitality space, you know, they saw, you know, a decline in their workforce. They had to furlough people, lay people off. And now they're looking to bring people back. And that's a challenge, right? When you, to bring people back online because, yes, some people are on unemployment benefits, but also some people have gotten out of the business altogether, right? There's a lot of job opportunities in other sectors, including places like construction and anything related to e-commerce and warehousing. And those jobs usually pay better than a hotel or restaurant job. So in some cases, people left the industry, even if they're still out there working. And, and you know, we know that people are, are guess that that may be true, that if you're willing to go out to eat, maybe you could, should be willing to take a job. But, you know, that's <laughs> right. not really reality, right? If you go to a restaurant and you say, oh, man, this doesn't look like a, a safe place for my family to eat. I don't like how many people are close by me. You can walk out. If that's your place of employment, it's a little bit harder to quit, right? right. So <laughs> there's people that are taking their time. People may be even waiting till a lot of people are pointing till September, right? Not only will benefits roll off, but schools, you know, hopefully most of the country could be reopened. And that allows people maybe to go back to work. So there's a number of factors at play for sure. And the competition is high for those uh, same pool of employees. You mentioned a manufacturing company. You know, they're just noticing it with big signs on other people's businesses saying, hey, big pay, big benefits, come over here. And, and for a lot of these manufacturing companies, that applicant pool is, uh, you know, similar profile. So same people that they're shooting for. Right. I mean, we've heard and, and seen studies showing that people have readjusted their perspective uh, during the pandemic. And part of it is just a chance to reevaluate. And part of it is these benefits that, you know, a lot of people I talk to really view sort of the minimum wage now as $15 an hour, even though in states like Missouri and elsewhere, it's much less than that officially. But they sort of say, hey, if I'm not getting 15 an hour, you know, I'm going to keep looking because I know there's a lot of opportunities out there right now. These unemployment ben benefits, as you mentioned, in a lot of areas, will fully expire in September. Is that the time we're going to see everybody kind of say, okay, now I need to go start looking for a job again? I think we're right now, this summer, kind of at the peak point of a post-pandemic labor shortage. And I think things will ease a bit as we get into the fall and people adjust to new routines and there's maybe not some of these disincentives. But I still think the ball is going to be in the workers' court. You know, we saw this 2019. Remember, the labor market was really tight. And I think it's getting back to that point very quickly. And that's going to mean that uh, employers are maybe need to raise wages or maybe need to adjust and say, you know, could this job be done remotely or could I be more flexible on my hours in order to attract the workers they need? Eric Marath, labor and economics reporter at the Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Sure. Happy to join you. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. This episode of The Daily Dive was produced by Victor Wright, 
and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.